Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and today we're going to take our discussion topics from the Infobox online community with the help of Sunil Amana, the Infobox community manager, who dug through all of the discussions of the last quarter to identify the top topics for us to go over today. Thanks for joining us today, Sunil. It's great to be here, Bob. And to dig into these topics, we have Craig Sanderson, the VP of Product Management at Infoblox, with us as well. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today, Craig. Yeah, great to be here, guys. Looking forward to it. Now, today's format is going to be a little different, as you may have noticed, as I'm turning control over to Sunil. These are the questions from his forum, uh, forum and so he's going to kind of drive the topics, and then uh, Craig and I will uh, try to unpack them. So that's the core of today's podcast. Um, so as I do that, Sunil, I'd like to ask you to clarify, let's start with what is a modern community? I mean, this isn't like a Facebook page. This is an actual community. So what is it beyond a, a discussion board? Well, so the basic value of a community is that it has the ability to help members get their questions answered by a large number of peers who use the same products and similar environments that they do. But beyond that, it helps people develop expertise, which makes them more valuable. Uh, Communities are great learning tools because it exposes members to a wide variety of issues over time, and it provides access to experts in the networking and security fields. And once a person gets some experience, they can give back and help others by sharing their expertise. All right. And and you've got people, I mean, all over the, the board. So some of the ones I've seen, they look like they're just learning about security, and you've got others that are, I mean, uh, I think you even classify them as super users that are on there. That's right. Yeah. Some of the members in the community who participate a lot are designated as super users, and we have some special events for them. But we're, we're especially appreciative of the super users because they add a ton of value. They've just got literally decades of expertise. Well, great for the background. And now I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, what's our first topic today? All right. So we want to talk about some security vocabulary, specifically around DNS. So um, we want to talk about RPZs. A lot of people active in the Infobox community are new to DNS as a tool for security. Uh, so as far as uh, RPZs, it stands for Response Policy Zones. Um, they're common as security professionals know that security tools are no better than the threat intelligence that they have available. So as soon as they learn that RPZs are where the threat intelligence sits for DNS security, they want to understand more about it. So, Craig, can you start us out with a summary of what an RPZ is mm-hmm. and how it relates to the threat feeds and other things that security professionals are more familiar with? Yeah, so a response policy zone is really just another DNS zone. And what it really, as the clues in the name, really talks about in terms of setting a policy for a list of domains and IP addresses. So obviously when a DNS request is made, we can check to see where the request is going to. So xyz.com. We'll also look at the IP address that's returned that tells the endpoint how to actually reach that particular domain. So what we do is with response policy zones, you can use your own allow or block list uh, so you can actually produce your own threat intel and you basically tell the DNS server, if someone tries to resolve this domain, you can either choose to block it, you can choose to allow it. Uh, you can also choose to redirect it. So quite often we see organizations, because DNS is normally the first service in the service chain before firewalls and other downstream devices, quite often the DNS server is able to make a, a policy decision, try to allow a block or redirect. And quite often they would then redirect 
if necessary, to a third-party service like a proxy or a next-gen firewall. So response policy zones has actually been part of the DNS standard uh, since 2010. So different from like the security world where standards don't really stick very well uh, in, in the networking world, it's, they tend to stick pretty well uh, quite, quite a lot. So response policy zones is nothing new. It's been around for well over a decade. Uh, one thing to, to be clear about with response policy zones it allows the DNS server to make those decisions, but as you said, it was only as good as the threat intel that's been created to work with that platform. Uh, some people think, well, I could just take threat intel I've got from any other source and be able to put that onto a DNS server as a response policy zone. Uh, that is certainly possible, but there's also things you have to bear in mind. As I said, a DNS server will block based on domains and IP addresses. So if you have a malicious URL and you say, well, I'll just take the last bit of the URL off and I'll just block at the domain. Well, if that malicious URL was cnn.com slash bad URL, you'd block CNN. So you have to be a little bit careful. So what the Threat Intel team we have here in Infoblox, uh, they are specialized in taking Threat Intel, but making sure they get the right balance between, uh, again, the broadest level of coverage as possible, but also factoring in the, the risk of business outage if you overblock. So reducing and managing false positives, absolutely critical when it comes to putting the right Threat Intel into response policy zones. So within the huge database of threat intel we have, we don't put all of that into response policy zones. We go through a very specific curation process to make sure that the data that goes on there, we can block with confidence. So that's certainly something to, to go and bear in mind with response policy zones. But essentially how it would work, it's actually relatively simple to set up. Uh, there is a response policy zone server, you put in your key, and then what essentially happens is every, typically depending on how often uh, it's set up for, you go off and query uh, the response policy zone and you pull down a delta. So you have the original list of threat domains and IPs. And on a regular basis, you go and check to see if there's any updates. So it's a continuously updated loop of, of threat intel. So as we update our threat intel, uh, that automatically gets propagated through response policy zones to an on-prem DNS server. And the nice thing is, is that propagation then, if it's built as a grid, which most DNS platforms are, that automatically gets distributed using the same essentially zone transfer mechanism as is used in the rest of the DNS zones, gets then pushed to all the other different DNS platforms in your network. So what a lot of customers love about this is, it's very easy to distribute a mitigation for a particular malicious domain or IP. It can be done very quickly. You tell a local DNS server, and that will be blocking on your on-premise DNS servers, the ones you could run in public cloud from Infolox, private cloud, wherever it happens to be, it works as one big system. So increasingly security professionals at see, compared to configuring a load of firewalls, it's sometimes easier to do a very quick block just by using response policy zones because it's part of the standard and it's going to work with any modern DNS server. I think one of the things you mentioned there was standard. And I think that's an important thing to, to highlight because anybody who's been in security you know, for long, you've got uh, you've got one vendor that maybe sells you your email security, another one selling your your you know secure web gateway, somebody else in your firewall, you got endpoint solutions, and all of them have threat intelligence that they're also providing for their tools. And every one of them has a unique proprietary database and, and encryption method to, you know, so that they can't be corrupted or attacked by the bad guys. Uh, at least now that wasn't always the case. Those were fun days, but um, you know, it's at its simplest form. RPZ is a standard for DNS that we all use and, or we all, everybody who's doing security at that layer, um, which does make it easier to share. 
But just like all those others, if you um, have an advanced threat intelligence program, you may want to be able to access this data and uh, pull the data from your firewall, your secure web gateway, uh, and your DNS uh, threat intelligence because they're different. Each one's designed around a different purpose. Mm-hmm. RPZ is DNS-specific threat intelligence, as Craig was just highlighting. But it's also, um, I mean, or you, but you also have endpoint solutions that are looking, you know, like for malware, they're really looking at scanning malware. They might have some behavioral stuff, but that's where they've pretty much always been. You have IPS IDS solutions. They're not so much inspecting packets for malware. They're looking for other indicators. There's a lot of different kinds of threat intelligence, but knowing where it is, um, there are tools out there where you can collect it all, aggregate it, normalize it and then redistribute it. So like threat intelligence that we have in an RPZ that we're providing, you could use, um, you know, either a full fledged, I mean, if you want to go that way, full threat intelligence platform, or we actually have a a function that would allow you to share that with other things. So they also, Mm -hmm. so your next gen firewall, your secure web gateway, they would also have that same threat intelligence at their layer as well. So that's where you get your defense in depth because again, as we started out, no tool is any better than the threat intelligence uh, because there's open source tools to do a lot of this stuff. There are open source endpoint security tools and open source uh, gateway solutions, open source firewalls. Um, but not too many people use it because you need the backing of a vendor who is managing the threat intelligence behind it, as well as those features that might make it uh, more usable. So I think knowing that RPZs, Well, they are a little bit different in that, number one, it's standardized, and it's technically a technology, not just a database format. There's a little more to it. But for security people, look at it like another database, another resource of threat intelligence that makes DNS effective, but also can be uh, leveraged across the entire security stack. Yeah, I mean, one other thing, a point to to really make around this. So so we do actually make, as you said, the ability to take our threat intel, put it onto third-party platforms. But in terms of because the way we generate threat intel, we're focused on looking at DNS traffic. And so the vast majority of malware uses DNS as a control plane. So we typically see that the overlap between our threat feeds and what you get from other vendors, commercial vendors, I would say, is less than 10% usually. So we're looking at a very different part of the threat universe, as it were. So as part of the defense in depth, again, you've already got most, pretty much every customer will have a DNS server there. You may as well take advantage of that infrastructure. It's quite often in some of those hard to reach places especially in large global networks. So be able to like distribute threat intel as that first line of defense. And then, as I said, the nice thing about it is even the policy actions seamlessly fit into existing SASE or existing proxy architectures because DNS is the, essentially the first service in the, in the service chain and you're not breaking networking. It's just that's the way it is. So you may as well use that service because it's available to you and it's even part of the standard. I'm going to be a bit of a timekeeper here, Sunil, since uh, this is the podcast. I, I, I'm doing this all the time. So um, what's our next topic here? So because this one we could go into quite a bit. Sounds simple, but there's a lot to RPGs. So what have you got else for us? All right. Uh, sure, Bob. So thanks a lot, Craig, for that explanation. So another topic I see discussed a lot in the community are APIs. Uh, the actual discussions range from the obvious questions about how to do it in Infoblox products to those looking for a higher level of understanding about if they should use APIs at all, given how much work it can involve. Uh, what would you tell someone wondering if APIs are right for them? 
I'll turn that to you, Craig. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it kind of depends on like how, what level of sophistication you've got and kind of what you want to do. The, the nice thing is, is a lot of the APIs we have at Infobox, both for the on-premise appliances and through our cloud platform, are pretty extensive. So uh, providing you've got some of the skills, especially normally Python skills or uh, REST API skills, a lot of valuable uh, critical metadata is actually available, which you can extract and put into whatever data sources or whatever, uh, other platforms you'd like. So if you've got the skill set to do it, there's a lot of things you can do. And some of our more creative uh, partners and customers certainly do take advantage of this. Uh, that being said, with APIs, sometimes it's really a case of you just want to have a, like a nice, smooth integration between what we have in terms of the data sources within Infoblox into these third-party platforms. Typically, SIM tools, SOAR tools, uh, sometimes Mac and vulnerability management systems. So uh, really, it's kind of a combination. So if you're, if you're not really... Uh, to the point where you have the skill set or the expertise or the time to go and focus on uh, doing tight integrations. Uh, we also have out-of-the-box integrations between us and a variety of different vendors where we've kind of pre-packaged the data that needs to go from us to that third-party platform. However, if you do have the skills, the APIs really give you uh, like uh, really detailed and granular access to data which you can pull in a whole wide degree of, of the different circumstances. So it does require some computer science skills, does need some scripting skills, uh, but the APIs are there and there's certainly a lot of uh, unique capabilities that you can trigger, a lot of automation you can trigger by using those APIs. But you do need to be able to understand, have at least a basic understanding of some of the, uh, some of the scripting languages. Well, and I want to highlight also, because uh, this is something a lot of people are concerned about, the, the work level to, to make it happen. If you're not used to doing this, if this is not something that, that you do a lot of, um, it can take a, a while. But by a while, we're not talking like a two-month project or anything like that. These can be done uh, fairly straightforward. You're writing scripts in uh, common popular languages, as long as you're familiar with the language. Um, your first few could take some. Uh, some time and you're going to maintain them. That's another one of the time commits. Once you do it, you got to go back in and maintain them. Um, but it, it really is pretty easy. I mean, our, our, the technical guys in the field, um, they sometimes help customers out, even though they're not supposed to, because there's, you know, potential gaps here in, in, in exposures, but they'll sometimes whip out a, a quick little Python script for somebody to do something basic. But then we had some customers I was talking to, uh, there's two customers, one who's got a global organization, um, and, uh, the other one who's a California state, uh, agency, they both were had had really gotten into this. Looked at all the data that was available, and I'm sure it came back to Craig, your team, you know, the the PM team, because they when I called to talk to them about something completely different, they said, "Oh, by the way, I want to show you what I did. Can you get this kind of a of a report or a dashboard in the screen uh, in in the product?" Because we wrote this tool, we love it. It gives us everything we need for our regulatory, you know, compliance or something like that. Um, cause they were, like you said, they can, you can use this to pull data, send data, uh, trigger actions. This can actually drive a lot of automation as well. So, um, this is, I think it's worth taking a look at and trying your first one or two. Um, I don't see anybody ever like doing, you know, we're, I, I used the phrase earlier about, oh, you can share that threat Intel across the entire, you know, security stack you're probably going to pick three or four or five tools that are the ones you really want to integrate. And that'll be about it. Um, so there are limits, but don't miss out on the opportunity that integrating those two, three or four could really bring to uplift your program. 
Right. And one of the reasons why we make the APIs available is even though there are certain kind of out of the box, as it were, integrations, which a lot of customers want. So we can actually go and build those. But I'm still always amazed, as you said, like customers come back and they will find innovative use cases we couldn't even possibly dream up. So making sure that the API documentation is available, enabling customers and partners to be able to build their own integrations based on whatever their use cases. The good news is, is there's a lot of possibilities out there. Uh, challenges we can't do all of them so making it available so customers can do it themselves but you have to decide is like do you have the time and the and the willingness to obviously build the integration and obviously sometimes maintain it the only risk sometimes is uh, if you try and plug it into another tool whether the APIs change on their side uh, that's the only thing you have to be kind of cognizant of but the, the flexibility and as you said customers who get to get into it uh, they're kind of stunned at the range of different use cases they could uh, potentially support now, I before we move on to the, the next topic, I did want to make sure everybody's really clear on on what we're talking about. When I uh, interviewed uh, with some of the analysts, I mean, we meet with them regularly to understand how they think our direction's going. There's all that wonderful business-related stuff on product direction and so forth. And when I brought up the APIs and the integrations, you mentioned out-of-box integrations, they almost rolled their eyes and I caught them and what they responded with, yeah, everybody says they do integration and they got out of box integration. And what they all mean is that they can integrate to a SIM because SIMs do 90% of the work and make it easy. You can pull a lot of stuff into a SIM. So anybody can easily claim, oh yeah, we integrate with a SIM. Um, but also, you know, ticketing systems like ServiceNow is the other one. They said, those are the two things that when we, Ask for details. Somebody says, oh, yeah, we integrate and can share data. What with? Those are the only two things that they can do. But once you get into the APIs, there's so much more. You were telling me actually on another call earlier today, Craig, about um, where you were talking about vulnerability scanners. Mm -hmm. um, you want to share some examples of other kinds of integrations to help people see just how far this can go? Yeah, I mean, vault scan is interesting. So one particular customer, they're a North American bank. So under compliance regulations, they have to scan their network. They scan what they think, they think is 60% of their network. They quite often scan the same device three times and not really under, not really realize it because it's a dynamic environment, things move around. And so by taking, like, especially a DNS platform, which is offering DHCP, quite often we're gonna know when a device comes on the network. So rather than having the vulnerable scanner go out there and try and see what might possibly be on the network, well, how about you wait until the device does connect to the network, gets a DHCP lease, and through our APIs, we go and tell Tenable, Rapid7, uh, Qualys, all those VON scanners, well, there's a new device on the network, it's this IP address, it's this MAC address, based on the DHCP fingerprint, it's a MacBook, so don't scan it like it's a Windows machine. And we can even tie in sometimes even the username as well. So by sharing that information, you can actually drive triggered scans. So rather than scanning at a particular point in time and hoping you catch everything when inevitably you're not, you can actually do a far more dynamic environment. And that is simply a, a very simple use case, a very simple integration. And it's literally just based on the fact that we would see the device coming on our network because we handed a DHCP lease to it. And we could do the same thing if it was a security event. If the device tried to go somewhere bad, we can trigger a scan. So the time between the suspected indication of compromise and when the scan is, rather than those things being disconnected, they're now brought together. You've driven one level of automation. So um, it's a very simple script. It works great and a lot of customers love it. It's just a, a great example of how uh, just by bringing the APIs together, you can make some magic happen and take some humans out the loop. One customer I talked to 
I asked them how they do it today. He said, well, we send the ticket and someone asked to press, press the magic, you know, scan that device uh, button. Well, why have the human in the loop when you could use the APIs to glue the two systems together? And, and that's a great example. When you we can trigger multiple things when you're starting to do all this sharing because, okay, an event takes place. You suggest a ticket and get a ticket issued so the right person who's probably doing something else right now, they see, okay, right. I know what I'm going to do next. In the meantime, you're triggering a vulnerability scan or other data gathering. You could automate, you know, gathering data from other sources so that five, 10 minutes later, when they actually have time to look at this ticket that just came up, they have the latest information and they actually start not from ground zero. They're starting with a lot of information right at their fingertips to do that early triage real quick. They don't have to pull logs. It could all be gathered and it all due to using APIs for some creativity. All right. Well, we're down to our last 10 minutes. Uh, what, have you, what else have you got for us here, Sunil? We haven't stumped Craig or anything yet. <laughs> so uh, the third security topic that was uh, coming up in the community was around data exfiltration. Uh, but other than the product-specific questions, the discussions fell into two areas. Uh, first, how DNS was used for data exfiltration in general and how to identify it when DLP solutions don't monitor DNS. And second, how DNS tunneling works. So Craig, can you tell us a little more about DNS exfiltration and DNS mm -hmm. tunneling? Yeah, so I mean, one of the reasons why DNS tunneling is, is increasingly being used, you see a lot of existing malware being re-weaponized, exfiltrate over DNS. The main reason for that is that adversaries know if they try and steal data over uh, the more common protocols, email and web, you probably have a DLP solution for that. But do you have a DLP solution for DNS? Well, DNS is that forgotten backdoor that no one really thinks about. So we're certainly seeing a lot of uh, malware being re-weaponized to exfiltrate over DNS. And the way they generally do it is actually relatively simple. It's turning your DNS server into their post personal postal service. So imagine I'm the adversary, and what I want to try and do is I want to exfiltrate data. Uh, I have a domain that's called badguy.com. Um, it's a brand new domain, newly registered, never ever seen before. So what I do is on my compromised host that I control, I get it to make a DNS resolution to subdomainx.badguy.com. Now, the cache in your DNS server will not have that because it's brand new, never seen it before. So what does your DNS server do? Well, I don't know where that is. I need to forward this out the DNS chain. So it will forward up to the root and eventually will reach uh, the adversary's uh, domain. Now, in the packet I send, I don't just say subdomain.badguy.com. I include all the data I'm going to steal. So I typically encode it. I'll encrypt it. Uh, typically, if the billions of DNS queries that are going through your system every day, who's going to pick out the one that is actually a malicious one where it's actually exfiltrating data? So DNS tunneling and uh, data exfiltration uses the same concept. You're basically including the data you're trying to get out over a DNS packet when you're essentially forcing the DNS server to not cache a result. It won't be cached. It will do the forwarding on your behalf. And what's your policy for your firewall for DNS servers? well, to allow DNS servers to forward packets out. Otherwise, internet browsing wouldn't work. So that's why sometimes it's used for avoiding like paywalls to something that DNS tunneling gets used for that. It also gets used for malicious purposes uh, like data exfiltration. But we have to be careful because a lot of legitimate apps abuse DNS and tunnel over it. So most of your antivirus updates go over DNS tunnels. 
Likewise, you'll see anything from Spotify, Bank of America's banking app. They use all that because they know that DNS normally has a free path to the internet. It will go straight through your firewall. So you've got a mix of benign applications that are abusing DNS, but you'll also have uh, malicious applications that are actually using DNS to tunnel sensitive or proprietary or confidential data. So they generally use it by making requests to subdomains to the domain they're trying to get to and knowing the fact that your DNS server won't have it in the cache and it will forward it as part of the standard DNS protocol. And and on that part on the DNS protocol, I want to highlight that um, I was talking to uh, Vadim on your team uh, not too long ago, and I had him help me understand because DNS is a very tight, very purpose-built protocol. It hasn't changed a whole lot other than those RPZs you said being added back in 2010. It, it's been there for 40 years. works pretty much exactly the same way. But um, these are small packets. And so I was asking him on the data exfiltration site, so how much data, you know, can you get through DNS? And he basically said that the DNS is so well-defined, everything in that packet is pretty much used for DNS. It's, there's no wasted space. So the same stuff that you could steal in one or two HTTP packets would take one or 200 DNS packets to do the same thing because it's, it's not designed for that. So it's not designed, when it comes to data exfiltration, it's not really going to be a great thing for stealing three terabytes of credit card information from a bank. It's it's more uh, the kind of thing that they would use early on in the attacks. So that's the other thing is by using and monitoring for data exfiltration in DNS, you're actually defending more at the front of an attack before they're actually getting those terabytes of data. Because what's the first thing they use? Um, I see report after report and survey after survey, it's credentials. They always want to steal credentials up front. And so if they can get on, on somebody's machine, they will use DNS to get those credentials out because then they can log in as that person who has the privileges and they can exfiltrate the data using totally legitimate looking means because that person's authorized to do that. And they've, so it's really maybe the only opportunity you have to identify data exfiltration um, from either the, uh, you know, stealing it out over DNS or if they're going to steal it out over normal methods, which, you know, DLP is watching HTTP, it's watching your USB drives, it's watching your email. It's, I don't know of any that are watching DNS for and, and doing that signature matching to, to see if somebody's stealing the, the recipe for Coke or something. Um, but if you catch them early, then you don't have them even doing it over SMTP, HTTP, or other other methods. You catch it real early on. Yeah, I mean, and also even if uh, if the attacker is uh, patient enough, if you think about it, stealing social security numbers, which is another thing that, that tends to get stolen, again, it's like nine digits. So even though, as you said, like it's not ideally designed for bulk export, there's still a lot that can still even be exported just by including in the limited space that still is available through uh, the DNS packet. The challenge is, is how do you pick that packet out of the billions of DNS queries that go through a typical network in a day? It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. The only way that, well, the way we do it, is we have to use machine learning because how can you sort out legit traffic, malicious traffic, and then also separating out the benign traffic that's just abusing DNS? Um, the only way to really do that at scale is using machine learning. 
And it also goes the other way. I want to make sure people, we keep talking about data exfiltration and everybody's always worried about that. But if you're in a ransomware attack, the DNS tunnel runs both ways. They can actually use DNS to send in the encryption key um, that the software needs to start doing its encryption. They'll do the basic, um, you know, uh, command and control C2 server communications over DNS, you know, things like, hey, D, uh, I've just found myself on a Mac OS. This is the version. Do you have any tools that I should use? And yeah, here's a little tool, small little purpose-built file that comes over, that can be sent over DNS. They can run it. They now know more about vulnerabilities on the machine. They send that list out. Those kinds of early communications, which there are lots of, you can, uh, you can see that at the DNS level and stop it. So I think that's a very important thing. Thank you, guys. So uh, those are the top topics from the community, and I think we're out of time. So let me turn things back over to you, Bob. All right. Hey, thanks, Sunil. That was a lot of fun. Um, and so it's great to hear what the security topics the community is actually discussing. Um, and, and I really mean that to the point where I think I'm going to sync up with you. I think this is a great thing to do every quarter because, um, you know, unless they keep having the same topics over and over, uh, this is good stuff that we don't normally get a chance to get into. Um, so, uh, thanks for joining us today, Sunil, and helping us with that. Uh, thanks, Bob. That'd be great. Thank, uh, thanks for having me. I'd love to come back. So I'm also really pleased we could get Craig away from his VP duties to discuss these hot topics. Uh, thanks, Craig, for taking the time to be with us today. An absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. And I want to thank uh, all of our viewers and listeners for your time as well today. Join us for our next episode as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.